This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Murder Was the Case is a free-form, conversational podcast which makes educated speculations about criminal cases and human psychology based upon the information we have reviewed. The show is intended to entertain and educate our listeners with regard to criminal psychology and behavior. At no point should the content of Murder Was the Case, whether spoken by a host or guest, be misconstrued as a formal professional opinion or diagnosis, nor as a wholly accurate or complete account of any case. Any person discussed as a suspect or potential suspect is innocent unless a court of law determines otherwise. If you dig Murder Was the Case on Glassbox Media, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MurderWTCase or on TikTok at MWTC podcast. I've had night terrors and woke up and grabbed a gun and walked through my house to make sure that they weren't in there. I, I mean, it is so easy to psychologically wreck yourself with this. And it's like, don't get caught up to the point where these are bad people who did bad shit that you're dealing with. You got to have a limit. Before you go into this, you got to set your limits and you got to stick to them. I think that's one of the most important things or you will fucking don't worry about them damaging you. You will damage the fuck out of yourself. Chris Duet, the dive bar writing to psychos inked in blood. Welcome back to the dive bar. This episode contains one of my favorite two minute stretches in murder was the case history. There is one case that I don't know that I genuinely think he's innocent there is one guy that I write periodically, Tommy Ziegler, where I do feel that he's completely innocent. And that was the reason I wrote him to lend my support and everything. I do believe he's fully innocent uh, of the crimes he was convicted of. But there's another guy in Florida named Robert Denny. And again, Robert these days wants nothing to do with me. But him and I used to talk back in the day. And his case is interesting because he was 17 at the time and... There was a woman in Jacksonville, Florida. She was a waitress. She lived by the beach. And someone came into her apartment on, I believe it was a night before Thanksgiving, and stabbed her in something 110 times, something of that. I mean, total overkill. She was nude, but she wasn't raped or anything like that. Might have been maybe a sexual assault gone wrong, crazy overkill. A lot of the wounds were shallow pickering stab wounds. Ah, and- just to clarify there, I distinguish between overkill and that. I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. Pickerism pops up a lot. I've given lectures on it and I've had people come back to me after the lectures, whether it's a year or whatever. And they go, I think I found that pickerism thing that you were talking about. Is this it? And they send me the crime scene photo. I'm like, yep. Yeah. You know, yeah. it really is more common than you'd think. How do you distinguish that from overkill? Okay. So I would say there's kind of four rules. <laughs> overkill could really, you could do that with a bludgeoning weapon, right? Like you yeah. could bash someone 800 times with a baseball bat. But so pickerism, first rule, must involve a slashing or piercing wound or, you know, an, an mm. implement that does that. First rule. Second, Clustered, uh-huh. third, shallow, uh-huh. fourth, in erogenous zones. So we're talking mainly breasts, nipples, uh-huh. vagina, perineum. I suppose 
if I saw it on the buttocks, I'd probably say, yeah, lips sometimes mm. too. I have a really interesting case I'm working on right now. Can't disclose too much, but you might see it solved soon. And I want you to know that I had a bit to do with it because mm. the papers probably won't tell you. But it was basically picarism, like exactly the same, but with burning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really controlled applied burning. But otherwise, so that violates my piercing principle, but everything else is the exact same. So you're saying that picarism lacks that frenzied. Yes. Uh, okay. Gotcha. Overkill. Yeah. Which I suppose could still be sexualized because anything can, right? But generally overkill is more of an expression of rage and or anxiety. Mm. So it can be, you know, I fucking hate you. Die, die, die. Or it can be like, I'm losing control. I'm losing control. Mm. She needs to, you know, or both or, you know, some combination of that. Or I've never killed someone before. So I'm going to stab them as many times as I can. So they can't possibly be alive. Yeah, 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 so that's where I, I draw the distinction. But anyways, back to your story. Yeah, so yeah, it sounds okay. like a hundred wounds and, and shallow. Yes. Do you yeah, know where they were concentrated? Torso is pretty much what I can tell you. Front torso, I believe, had a lot of wounds. Stomach area, chest area, Could I believe. Torture too. Possibly on legs. Well, this is. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get to something that's interesting here. So, yeah. her neighbor who lived about maybe 35 feet away from her in an apartment across a courtyard upstairs 17 year old kid robert denny he was charged and convicted of the murder several years later how the police got him on the radar was really screwy they obtained his dna they matched it to dna evidence of the crime scene but the dna evidence of the crime scene was really screwy and they talk about how the victim fought for her life and ripped his hair out but i believe that robert denny the man convicted on the victim's bedding or on her underwear or something was one of his head hairs with the root bulb attached. So if you're fighting your ass off, you're not going to pluck one hair from your attackers. It's just, it's very, very weird. And then there's a blood spot on her kitchen counter and her window was open. The attacker fled through her window out probably to avoid a light shining on her front door which is right over by the side and went out the window why would he need to do that if he's running 35 feet across a courtyard into his apartment and apparently he had gloves on as well but there's bloody fingerprint as if he sliced his hand open and there's a lot of screwy stuff with that but his name is robert denny and uh, a lot of people see oh dna and they kind of closed the book on it. But really, if you look into the case, you explore it. There's a lot of things that just don't make sense. And not to say that he's innocent or I think he's innocent, but it's still a case that I have not concluded personally, my opinion, that he is or isn't. I think there's just a lot of fucked up stuff in that case. But just to move forward and add a little bit more to this, and, and this might make a little more sense to you, the woman who was murdered had a, a man she worked with she was a waitress this guy was a dishwasher he was openly obsessed with her and when he was questioned by police they asked him well if you would have killed her how would you have done it and he pretty much told them exactly (laughs) how she was killed and i believe the fatal wound was to her throat right away probably to stop screaming or something but that's he you know he said i'd I'd slash her throat and i'd rape her and this and that and that guy after that ended up moving to the netherlands so (laughs) interesting case robert denny florida robert denny you mentioned also a ziegler 
Oh, yeah, Tommy Ziegler. So this is a more well-known case in, in the Central Florida area. Ah, man, I believe this was in the 70s or late 60s. He's been on death row for a very, very long time. He was well-to-do, had a well-to-do family, owned a furniture store, W.T. Ziegler, in Ocoee, Florida. And one night, his family members went into the furniture store with someone who worked there and the electricity was cut off from the outside everybody in there was shot and killed tommy himself was shot and they said that he killed all of them to collect insurance money and this and that and he shot himself to cover it up and there's just a lot there's a, a private investigator down here named lynn marie cardi and she did a ton of fucking work on this case and uncovered so much stuff and if you look into this case it's really really hard to think that tommy ziegler did this when you're in touch with a guy like that, do you feel a burden or a responsibility? How many people is he in touch with? Are you just one of many? Yeah, I think I'm one of many. I know at least one other person who talks to him. I don't know how regularly. And I'll send him something around the holidays and things like that to say, hey, you know, like I'm in your corner letting you know I'm thinking about you during the holidays. I know death row is rough and just know that someone's out here rooting for you and trying to spread some awareness when I can about your situation and, and things like that. Just give them a little moral support, stuff like that. As far as, you know, keeping in touch and we're friends and all that, eh, no. But, I mean, I do advocate strongly for him. How emotionally close have you gotten to someone that you've written to? And a follow-up question to that, is it a good thing or should it be avoided at all costs? I think that people should try to avoid it. I know I do. Sometimes there's just people that you really get along with and you really like. And um, for me to, to give a couple examples of that, I became very close with Barry Lucatus, who's a school shooter in Washington State. And again, that was now a he, guy who wore the cowboy hat, right? He wore a duster. But uh, him and I talked for years, and I got really close to him. We just had a, a ton in common. I think he's incredibly, genuinely remorseful for his crime, to the point where there's sometimes where he just feels bad if he is in a good mood or smiling because, you know, he feels like he shouldn't deserve to have that after what he did. Things like that. And really... When you meet someone like that, that's genuine and, and you get close to him, you kind of let your guard down a bit. And and I think I did that with Barry. Another one who I got along with really, really fucking well was Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger and I got along really fucking well, which is so weird because massive generational gap. We come from fucking two different worlds and I fucking I like the guy a lot. When he died, I hadn't talked to him for years. I was talking to him when he was in the county jail awaiting trial. So, I mean, it had been at least maybe seven, eight years since I had talked to him. And when he died, I felt kind of bad. I was like, I lost a friend, you know, which is weird. It's so weird. And I didn't expect it. But it, and I was like, oh, yeah, I don't feel bad. And I was like, you know what? It does kind of hurt a little bit that he died. But, you know, it happens. And, and sometimes you drop your guard to different degrees. I would say with Barry, I was much more open and willing to accept him in that friend role as I was with Jim Bolger. But I did enjoy talking to Jim and I did like Jim as a person. And I know he's a terrible person and I know he's he did a lot of horrible shit but sometimes you just click with people well i think the thing about whitey bulger is that he must have been 
a highly charismatic and influential figure to have been as successful in organized crime as he was. Yeah, I don't doubt that for one bit. I got him at a point in his life where he was very depressed and, you know, his outlook was bleak. And I don't know, man, I... I don't know if that was part of it or anything, and he became vulnerable in that time or something, and maybe he was different than he would have usually been, but he was very likable, and he was very easy to be comfortable with. What about just practical ideas, like when you're writing to inmates and you're sending physical letters, which, by the way, you don't need to do anymore because of this JPay. Dude, JPay, JPay is the shit. It is, so... That's what I think I would recommend if anyone's looking into doing this. Mm. Look into JPay. It's really not that difficult to yeah. figure out JPAY. Mm-hmm. And you can like go to Google Play. <laughs> it's on there. And essentially what you do is you just load it up with uh, some money and that allows you to send letters to anyone who you know their um, DOC number, right? If they're the institution that they're in is, is compatible with JPay and JPay emails, yeah. Yeah, and you, you can, I think you can search for that because that's what mm-hmm. I did. Yeah, it'll, search it'll them. Tell like, you, oh, he's yeah, in the system. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, but if you want to do it the old way, we're getting letters in the mail. A lot of people want to use PO boxes, which is totally understandable. Yeah. But I know a guy who was writing to quite a lot of serial killers, and he spoke about this, and he said, "Look." they're going to be able to find out where you live if they want. Mm. It's not difficult for them. It's like you were saying about the cell phone thing, right? It's in their nature to be able to find cracks in the system and exploit them. So is the PO box thing really necessary? Because at the end of the day, if they want to get you, they're going to anyways. Yeah, no, I never used one. I always used my home address. I didn't write people with parole opportunities and I didn't write gangbangers because if someone's going to reach out and touch you from that fucking prison, it's a gangbanger. Those dudes got the power to do that. But yeah, I mean, they're not going to come for you. And and if they do, I mean, that's that's the chance you take writing them in the first place. You know, you could be completely off their radar by not talking to them. So I yeah. mean, it is what it is, you know, there's a bit of the thrill of that, right? It's like going to the zoo and walking right up to the tiger cage. Oh, of and, course. Yeah. yeah. When I when I got my first letter, my first letter was from Richard Ramirez. I opened up the mailbox and I pulled it out and I couldn't read it because he wrote like shit um, yeah. on, on the envelopes. Terrible and, uh, drawing. Too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So many terrible drawings. But he, he wrote like shit and I, I had to look at it for a second. And then I'm standing there looking at this envelope and it says Richard Ramirez. And then I see that it's addressed to Chris Duet. And I was like. Richard Ramirez knows who I am. That was my first thought. You get the pit in your stomach, you know, and yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, it's like the universe just focused all of its sights on you. Yeah. And when I say yeah. the universe, because to me, implicit in the universe is things like suffering and death mm-hmm. and now you're in its sight. You're not a hobbit anymore, man. You're it's it's yeah, it's a weird it, feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something about flirting with that. I remember I had a girlfriend and when she started seeing me, she resumed her habit of writing to prisoners and she was like, Hey, look what I got a letter from. And it was a letter for me and Brady and then uh, BTK letters. 
Mm, yeah. Played ch- chess with BTK. He's a butthole. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to state the obvious, but... He's a bit of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it was interesting because I remember talking to her like, well, if you're playing chess with BTK, we know how he thinks. So what would a guy like BTK do if we like how do we use what we know about his psychology to fucking beat him at chess or do we let him win right it's it's weird how because these are not things that you explore when you interact with normal people so it's just funny how you delve into this pathology that you don't usually pull out to use and then you know because if you and i were playing chess right now we're not going to be using (laughs) what we've tuned into the other's psychological background to try and defeat them but when you're talking to a serial murderer a high profile one at that that you have a lot of knowledge of yeah you do that that's part of it it's the being able to access things that you don't usually access in human interaction, that's part of the allure of it. And 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 you can do that. So I don't know, man. I think that makes it a little more romantic, you know? Yeah, I agree. But there's also this idea of you know by their nature that they're going to try to manipulate you and use mm. you. And... It's like that, you know, the chess game is symbolic of the greater game, mm-hmm. which is the not only them not using you, but if anything, you getting the upper hand on them, which good luck, by the way. Right. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. 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 They know. they know they're they're ready for it. They fully expect you to have that angle they don't go into this naive they never do well i don't think they're naive about anyone and they've never have been because they must have like at least the capacity of self-reflection to know that they actively prey on other people and i'm not even talking about murdering but just con them lie to them and if they go well if that's what i am that's what other people are too right the same way that a person who's like really emotional and charged with feelings and sympathetic can be dangerously naive and become a victim because they assume that human beings are really good deep down within but you know Mm. it's like a hurt little boy and then the next thing they know they're become a victim because they have that worldview well you can push it in the opposite direction where the psychopath or paranoic they're looking at you the way that they look at the world and they're thinking that you're like them at some level. Yeah. No, maybe just not as good at it and they've got to be better. I think that is it. And I think that when things are like that, you have to get them out of the mindset that they're thinking, okay, they're not seeing this as I'm having a conversation. I'm having an interaction. They're seeing this as okay. Games on I'm matching wits with this person. You got to get them out of that. You know, if they are like that, you got to break that down. How you go about that, I don't know, man. Everybody's different. But if they do have that mentality of this is a game, we're going to match wits and I'm going to come out on top and you're not going to fuck me over and fuck you. (laughs) I mean, you got to find a way to get rid of that. So uh, I don't know. It's all part of the game, you know? 
Yeah, I wonder if with some of them, if you can just say, hey, we're probably both doing this, but let's be honest, we're just wasting our time with this. I mean, that's got to work on some of them, right? You've got to be yeah. like, you know, you're on guard, you're, you're suspicious of my motives, mm. and so you're constructing your replies a certain way. I'm doing the same thing. Why don't we just not, yeah. right? Yeah. But like, I mean, that's hard enough with regular people, right? I mean, that's the problem. Even to say that to like someone in your family or a friend or something like that sometimes, and it doesn't work, then it's like you're doing it with someone who's incarcerated for heinous crimes or the pattern of them. I think when you take that approach, you run the risk of making them feel like they right off the bat are completely disregarded. And they are there as a guinea pig for the convenience of whatever you are using them for. And I think when you make them feel like that, they're not usually going to respond with, yeah, you're right. Or, <laughs> you know, nah, like, yeah. we both have our objectives. But they're usually not that self-aware and logical to the situation to respond like that. I think maybe you or I would probably respond like that. But for the most part, I think they're emotional creatures in, in a sense. And I mean, there's a lot of distortion there that would keep them from responding that way, you know, so... They may not even be aware that they're playing the game that they're playing because they've never not played the game. Yeah, yeah, that definitely could be it. <laughs> it's not that wouldn't yeah. be unheard of with them, you know, so. I don't know. Yeah, OK, I'm sure that you've got some more tips or pointers or stories. So now is the time to get them out. Well, I mean, really, the thing is, don't get overly invested in what you're doing. It's okay to be involved in what you're doing and to take it seriously, but don't get overly invested. Don't get caught up. Don't do this to the point where you're having nightmares about these people and shit like that. It is easy to fall into that. It really Has is. Has that happened to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had night terrors and woke up and grabbed a gun and walked through my house to make sure that they weren't in there. I, I mean, it is so easy to psychologically wreck yourself with this. And it's like, don't get caught up to the point where these are bad people who did bad shit that you're dealing with. You got to have a limit. Before you go into this, you got to set your limits and you got to stick to them. I think that's one of the most important things or you will fucking, don't worry about them damaging you. You will damage the fuck out of yourself. Right, right. When you said they... I wondered, were you talking about multiple people or was it a specific individual? It was multiple people, but I mean, man, I had some really gnarly nightmares and stuff about Philip Jablonski, him chasing me, being in my house, stuff like that. But I mean, when I was dealing with dozens of people at any given time, so I wrote an article about this for Vice probably about five or six years ago. And in the article, I said... The cost of digging into these people's heads is sometimes they'll hide in yours. And mm. it's fucking, it's so true. So, I mean, you got to have that medium and you got to have your limits and you got to know when to withdraw. And I think that that is such a huge thing or you will fuck yourself up. It's almost like a little bit like being a pickup artist to an extent, mm. right? Yeah, I understand that. 
I imagine Ramirez could get inside your head too, because you know that's a guy that's gone inside people's houses and decimated it's, it's, entire it's, families. You know, it's it's with Ramirez, it was little subtle things with him. It would be him saying, What kind of music are you into? I like ACDC and stuff like that. And then that makes me think of the ACDC hat he wore when he goes into the houses and shit. And it's just little things like that, that creep in that you're very unsettling. And, and now this is not something that you are looking at from a distance. This is not something where this is on a newspaper. I'm completely separated from this person. They don't know I'm alive. This is now something that you're staring at right in the fucking face. And that can be heavy. You know what the funny thing I always found with Richard Ramirez and like the music that he picked, right? Like, I think that he was like, this is really transgressive stuff. This is heavy metal. Like, you know, Billy Idol's a bad motherfucker. ACDC rock. It's kind of like, in a way, I'm not really a metal historian or anything, but I'm pretty sure there are a lot more hardcore bands around at that time, like in the mid 80s. He could have jumped on the Slayer bandwagon. That's easily. what I'm saying. Well, why the fuck wasn't he into Slayer? Like, he's a turd. Never liked Yeah, I get that feeling with Richard. It's like, I can't believe I just call him a first name basis. That's fucked. Um, <laughs> Dick. But, Dick. Yeah. Dick. Can we, can we call him Dick? <laughs> Dick Ram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dick Ram, <laughs> the Bill and Ted of serial murder. <laughs> I got the impression that you just could not relate to him because, once again, he's just very one dimensional did you see that interview with him with the total square who came in as like and i'm gonna take ramirez to task and he sits down and he's like you're very good at reading from your script richard and all this and ramirez is going like spouting off his stupid but shit. like almost exhaustedly like he's sick yeah. of hearing his own bullshit yeah just yeah aphorisms you know you what are, i mean you are you are fucking dead on he was so painfully boring unbelievably boring that i dreaded getting a letter from him because it was my fucking god i'd rather watch paint dry it's just this is so mundane you would not believe it he sucked zero personality his personality was completely adopted he has no genuine personality he was fucking dull as a spoon that's what I'm getting at with the uh, ACDC and the Billy Idol and the Judas Priest and stuff. His like, music, hey, look, music taste reflects his personality. I, look, well, yeah, man. Like, I'm going to be <laughs> honest with you. I saw ACDC live. I'm not a fan. Like, I don't play it at home. I saw them live because they were at a music festival. They were fucking awesome. Like, as a live band, they upstaged the Rolling Stones. That was who was headlining, right? You'd go to that concert if it cost you, like... $25. Yeah, no, actually, it was a free fucking concert. That's right. Mm. Yeah, so... Gotta love yeah. Canada. Well, that's because we got the <laughs> SARS. It was like a fundraising <laughs> thing for that SARS shit. And so all these musicians came to uh, Toronto and the Stones headlined and the ACDC opened for them and they totally upstaged the Stones. Mm. And... So, like, I, I appreciate ACDC. I get why people like them. I still have fond memories of the strippers in my hometown gyrating <laughs> around. Of poles and like. So, like, yeah, I have that certain soft spot for ACDC, but I don't listen to them at home. And 
you know, Billy you're definitely Ar- not going to go out and kill people <laughs> and being like, yeah, fuck yeah, ACDC gets me pumped to go mutilate people. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, right, <laughs> like once again, like Judas Priest, I, I'm not, not really a fan. I know a couple of their songs. Like, I like that song. You got another thing coming, right? Yeah, but. Right. It's not really badass. It's just kind of a fun tune, right? <laughs> and then, like, Billy Idol, he, like, dances in his videos and stuff, <laughs> right? Okay, out of all of them, I actually like Billy Idol the, the best. <laughs> I'm like, it's unfortunate that some people didn't control certain aspects of your image because you're almost cool. But Dude, I, I, like, I'm such a huge Prince fan, and that alone tells me that I can never be a fucking serial killer because, I don't know, man, it's not good with my look and and me admitting stuff like that i can't pull it off i can't pull the serial killer thing off <laughs> right what i'm we're getting at though with ramirez though it's like it's like he wasn't socialized enough to know what the real counterculture was so he was like yeah billy idol he's on mtv yeah. and he, he there's chains in the video and <laughs> You know what I mean, like, it's just like he just reached out and grabbed a bunch of, <laughs> yeah, of stuff without knowing that, like, like you said, there was Slayer, and there, I think there at that time too, there was like early Fucking, thrash metal, yeah, and, Metallica and Exodus, and all those awesome bands were out in California where the fuck he was, and he's listening to ACDC. So yeah, he's a patchwork quilt of media references, like trite media references. Yes we can do the thing where we go, well, he's a psychopath, right? And yes, uh, psychopaths seem to have a kind of like hole where their personality should be, but not to that extent, you know? And then you go like, well, is it low IQ? I mean, he didn't seem that low IQ. He seemed pretty goddamn stupid when I talked to him. <laughs> so, I mean, I can't tell you there was not a lot of substance there and i mean really how he managed to write a page long letter is fucking beyond me and it was just the stupidest shit send me pictures of girls feet send me pictures of asian girls go to the beach and take pictures of girls at the beach and send them to me yeah because i'm a fucking weirdo just like you no problem mm-hmm. and then what kind of cars do you like and i like ferraris and they're fast vroom vroom and <laughs> i mean it was oh my god horrible dreadful conversing with that guy i'm having ptsd right now recalling this right just the agony of having to (laughs) get through that okay then if it was painful to correspond with ramirez was there someone that was like the opposite that was truly engaging or is there just something about the criminal personality like at that level of criminality we were talking about extreme criminality where yeah. they're just missing a part of them that could be interesting because they can't really connect at a human level. Yeah, that could be because some of them is it very much feels like work. You're working to keep this correspondence moving and keep it in, engaging and it's not easily flowing and yeah, some of them very much feel like work and a lot of people would think that the whole bloodthirsty killers and stuff is the that that gets old really fucking fast you know Mm -hmm. and then really you do look for substance and you do look for people who can engage your interests and hang with you on an intellectual level and maybe even share your sense of humor or something like that and you know you start looking for that stuff and that is few and far between so really the majority of it feels like work 
But it's work that you keep doing. The interest is there, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> interesting on interesting people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know what? You know what you're doing. So it's part of the grind. And I don't think it gets to a point where you become disinterested. I think it gets to a point where you become bored, but not disinterested. I think bored to the point of you want that good conversation to come along and and it makes you dig more and try to push to find what you're looking for and really what's going to scratch your itch. And yeah, it's just, it holds you like that, you know? I think the paradox might be that we assume that these people are really deep and that there's all of these threads of narrative Mm. and choices and responses to the world and that led them to be what they are. And increasingly I like when you mention Ramirez and how boring he is and the lack of personality and the inability to be even genuinely countercultural, you know, the, <laughs> the Bill and Tedization of <laughs> that, that's what I'm getting. I'm getting at like maybe contrary to the whole silence of the lambs secrets of Hannibal Lecter, you know, unlock his mind. It's like a, yeah. a vast catacombs full of dark spaces and you can get lost in there. And maybe the answer is that they're the least complex people in the world. Yeah. And you look at their crimes and you're like, well, my friend John Hamer, I I nominated him for a funniest moment award at our last uh, bloody award ceremony when he said Mm. this. He says, I looked at a serial killer and he says, I don't think you're better than me or that like you're superior because you've transcended some sort of moral boundaries. Like I'm fully aware of the fact that I could do these things, that I'm capable of doing this. Yeah. I look at you like, the kid on the playground who's still shitting his pants at the age of six. (laughs) And he's like, and he said, you don't look at that kid and say like, I've never shit my pants. Cause you do, you remembered when you shit your pants. But what you do is you look at them and you go, you're six. Like, why are you not potty trained right now? And he was like, I feel that way as to their violent and sexual impulses. Like, why are you not potty trained in regards that, to those things? That is so incredibly accurate that I, I cannot tell you how accurate and well said that is. Yeah. And there's a theories going back. I read this first in rather controversial profiler, Mickey Pistorius, you know, the South African one. Did you ever encounter her? That's interesting because you get a lot of South African cases if you read her Mm -hmm. books. But she believed in like the Freudian thing where they get stuck at different phases. So she would find a killer that bit breasts and conclude that he had been stuck at the oral stage of, you know, oral fixation stage. And then, you know, highly organized killers would be stuck at the anal stage where it was about, you know, and, and, and all this sort of shit. And But it was always about getting trapped at a developmental stage. And then I read another book by Dr. Helen Morrison, who said that she thought that serial killers had an emotional age of about 18 months or something like that. So I just wonder if there's something to that. Is it just like they don't develop? You know, like you remember when you were a kid, 
some of the things you ever look back at things you did when you were a kid and when like, what the, what was wrong with me? Like three or four and being over at a friend's house and he had a cupboard under his stairs and that's where he kept all of his toys. And for some reason he had like this little smiling tree house play set that I didn't have. And I liked to play with and his name was David. And I was like, Hey David, let's play with this. And he was like, no. And then I just remember wrapping my hands around his neck and strangling him and then him crying and then his mom coming in and going like, what are you doing? And then just being like, right, what am I doing? And then Holy like her shit. Well, and then her telling my mom and my mom being like, did you do that? And I'm like, yeah. And it's like, why? I'm like, I don't know. But like, I have like incidents like that in my childhood, but I don't do that anymore. Right. Like, you know, yeah. I, I would say, you know, progress past that. And yeah. 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 When it's like, when you're a kid, you just like this, you've got like this blank sort of in, you know, this is why I think mm. you find bullying in kids and it tends to kind of go away. And in most kids who are bullies over time, they learn through their experiences that it's, it's not a good way to be and yeah. they develop some self-reflection. But if you don't have that, maybe you to stay at like, uh, I don't want to play with that toy strangle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's and I then mean, the, you substitute the toy for your dick. I don't want to play with your dick. Strangle. <laughs> but no, seriously. Yeah, right? no, no. That's that's not a crazy concept. It's really not. People want to endlessly dig and think that this is a deep well and they want to fall in it and see how far down it goes. And I think people would be shocked to find out that it is not what they think it is. <laughs> I think when people write serial murderers and things like that they do it with an expectation and i think more often than not they'd be disappointed so overall to conclude writing to serial murderers or maybe incarcerated felons in general you find they tend to be more shallow than people on the outside I can't say for the most part, but I mean, yeah, that's there. That's something you will encounter. I would probably say more often than not, I don't encounter this well-spoken, articulate Ed Kemper. I mean, more often, oddest tool. So, <laughs> Right, right. And everyone's writing Kemper, so he doesn't respond. I heard that Kemper converted to Christianity. Oh, yeah, that- yeah. A long time ago, he converted. There was a time where it was like, Ed's the fun one. Like Ed's the one that will actually tell you what happened and just be frank about it and be frank about himself. And then I started to realize there's a lot of bullshit in there. You know, uh, yeah. Oh, no. I mean, you you can't forget who you're dealing with here. This is a guy that memorized these fucking tests to get out of whatever institution he was as a teenager, Calipatria or wherever. There's um, Atascadero. Atascadero. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Come on, (laughs) you're not going to get a genuine take from that guy. It's going to be loaded somehow. Well, he started mentioning this fiance he had and how he wanted to stop murdering so he could marry this woman. And it always just seemed like, really? Like, where did she (laughs) pop up from? Like, all of a sudden, she just appeared in the story. You went from being completely unable to navigate any relationships with women whatsoever to now you've got a fiance. 
I mean, we're running in circles now. It goes back to controlling the narrative, you know? Yeah, exactly. And this, this, it this, goes back this, to uh, self-image. 1984, uh, you know, or- Orwellian thing that they all try to do. So, I don't know. I remember reading a book by Elliot Layton. Did you ever read Compulsive Killers in the States, but in Canada, it's Hunting Humans? You know what? I think I may have. It's a classic, but it fell out of fashion because it wasn't a complete look and it ignored the psychological altogether. And so people were like, okay, well, it was good back then, but now it's sort of out. But I think there's still a lot of worth in that. And it talks about how they visualize themselves, like how they see their identity and make sense of their crimes with absolutely, you know, no talk of of psychological ailments or whatever and how they're products of the culture. And they put Kemper in there. Talking about how actually, I don't mean politically, but how conservative Mm. a lot of these guys are. And I wonder if that's something that you saw borne out. So I'm not talking about like a member of a conservative party or a Republican or something like that. No, I'm, not, I'm talking about like socially conservative. Yeah. You yeah. know, they're never challenging the order. They're never railing against the government or trying to transform society that ultimately it's a protest against their real or perceived exclusion from the existing order. And that really resonated with me. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think that that's too tall of an order for a lot of them. And I think that exercising any potential of power that they could gain from that is much easier to obtain through what they ultimately end up doing. We have a friend that we've had on the show a couple times named James Sparks. He's a national and international professor of serial homicide. And we kind of joked around a little about the morality of serial killers. And uh, I strangled her, but I would never rape a woman. It's, it's like you said with yeah, the, the, the Ridgeway thing. Yeah, or the, the story with Bittaker and I think it was John Douglas. So he comes in, he goes, so what'd you do with them bitches? And this and that, trying to create that level of comfort. And were those bitches in a lot of pain and all this? And then Bittaker comes back and says, man, what was that guy's problem? I've never called a woman a bitch before. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> Oh, yeah. So that exists. What you're talking about was Gary Ridgway. And mm-hmm. he didn't say rapist. He said raper. Yeah. <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, I'm not a raper. I'm a killer. And his whole thing was that he had paid to have sex mm-hmm. with them. And then he had strangled them. But we know that he strangled some of them while he was having sex with them. Right. It's like, did it not cross your mind, Gary, that probably <laughs> around that point, the consent part changed. <laughs> yeah. That kind of maybe ventures into the realm of rape. Yeah. Or an- another interesting one was Clifford Olson. And I can't remember who it was, was speaking with him. And he was like, yeah, I killed all those kids and teenagers or whatever. And it might've been Eric Hickey or something was talking to him. And they mentioned that he had sexually assaulted them. He's like, I didn't sexually assault them. He's like, yeah, you did. Like, that's mm. just a known fact. And he's like, I was never convicted of that. 
<laughs> so his logic was, I wasn't convicted of it, therefore it didn't happen, despite yeah. the fact that I've already said that I did it previously. You know, it's, 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 it's always funny running into the skewed morality. John Wayne Gacy, oh, I'm not gay, I'm bisexual, and you know, yeah. I never killed anybody. Well, I did. I did. Hold on. There's this one guy, but he came at me with a knife. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so I took it off um, <laughs> and I, I killed him because I had to because it was self-defense. And I was like, where am I going to put the body? I'll put it down in the crawl space. And then I went down there. And, oh, my God. There was like 20 other bodies down there. Yeah, and I yeah. just said to myself, you know what? This isn't any of my business. Yeah. Oh, and let me show you this rope trick uh, for to tie your hands. I mean, <laughs> they're skirting the issue and they have their own skewed morality at times. And it's weird to find out what that is whenever that pops up. It's just one of those interesting things that reminds you of why we do what we do, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So we've been rambling for quite a bit. I, I feel like we're conversing more than actually having a podcast, but it's okay. <laughs> I can edit. Any <laughs> other tips, Chris? I mean... No, I think we cover everything that really should be addressed pretty thoroughly if, if someone's going to entertain the idea of getting into this. And if they listen to this show, they'll have enough ammunition to hit their target. So I think we covered it fairly thoroughly. <laughs> okay, concluding question, and then we'll close down the dive bar. This is your life's work in a way. And mm -hmm. as I've told you before, I think it's really valuable. I don't underestimate what you've done at all. I think it's brilliant. Where does this culminate for you? Because I, I feel like it has to build towards something. Maybe you don't agree, but it seems to me like all of this time and effort and all of these stories do converge in some sort of work yeah um i think once upon a time there was no direction in that sense but as of now what we're doing is we have criminal perspective and it's out there but with that comes essentially a library of what we're doing and a, a catalog basically we're just trying to grow this catalog and make it something that could potentially be a reputable source for this type of information. Wherever that goes from there, I don't know, whatever worth is put on that, I don't know. But I think that having that, just the fact that we have that and it exists is valuable and really lends not credibility, but it puts in focus. That's the effort. You know, you spend so many time writing the book, you want to see the book. That's just what it is. We want to have a body of work and know that we did something. And, you know, we're documentarians. We gather data. We put a lot of work into this. And whatever that's worth in the future, we'll see. Right. And you guys have been doing it a long time. And mm -hmm. I think that you've psychologically survived it. But I'm reminded of Jason Moss who I'm sure mm. you're familiar with. Mm. I think his book was called The Last Victim. Mm -hmm. And he got in touch. He was mainly in touch with John Wayne Gacy, but he also wrote to Dahmer and a few others. And Jason Moss, as an adult, blew his head off, if I recall correctly. You're familiar with that case. What do you think, to close this down, that Jason Moss did incorrectly which led him to go from writing to serial killers as a teenager 
to blowing his head off because I do think there's a causal link there. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Well, I've spoken to several people who were very close with John Wayne Gacy and things like that. And by several accounts of more than a few very reputable people, more reputable than Jason Moss, was that Jason Moss was full of shit. The book, The Last Victim and all that was all his work that he put into it when he could have quietly became a, I mean, he became a lawyer. He could have quietly found his success in that, but he put it in The Last Victim and by all accounts, the book was a crock of shit for, I've heard from several people. So, I mean, really with that being the case, I don't know what happened with Jason Moss (laughs) and Yeah. So, so I mean, he did contact Gacy and spoke with him, but you're saying that there's events Gacy, in that Gacy, book that are... Fr- Gacy never tried to attack him, and he never had the guards in his pocket. And I mean, the guards hated Gacy's guts. He couldn't attack anybody if he wanted to in the circumstances of a, a visit. I, I know people who visited him multiple times. I mean, we had his art dealer on our show. <laughs> right, uh, Rick uh, Staten. Rick, Rick, yeah, Rick Staten. And then we had James Sparks. James Sparks did his master's thesis on Gacy was the first person to ever do that spent hours visiting with Gacy. And I mean, those are just two people that undermine Jason Moss's recollection of things. And, and Rick Staten even goes as far to say that he thinks that Jason Moss killed himself because he knew he was full of shit and had a potential lawsuit coming and all this other stuff. You know, I think if you're going to do this, you have to stay genuine. That's part of it. And maybe you won't turn out like Jason Moss. All right, buddy. Well, thanks for all the tips. <laughs> Good conversation as always. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.